Hello, everyone. Welcome uh, to the event with Charlie Lee, and welcome to Profit's new offices. We've been here about three weeks. We're still working out some of the kinks, the microphones, uh, everything else, but. Uh, we're very excited to have Charlene uh, break in the office with the first profit event of uh, 2017 and the last profit event of the Year of Monkey. Um, and so we're glad everybody could come and join us today. Uh, nobody came here to hear me speak, so I'm going to keep it short and sweet. Um, but I did want to, uh, to take the opportunity to at least talk about uh, altimeter profit relationship. And so. Um, Profit was lucky enough to, to meet Charlene a few years ago and uh, then convince her to come join the Profit family and bring her amazing team in San Francisco. And so the relationship between Profit and Altimeter is sort of brother-sister um, and we are lucky enough to be able to use the great thinking that Altimeter does. Uh, and so for those of you that aren't aware, I mean, Altimeter is a research company. Uh, so they do a lot of, of leading edge thinking around all things digital. Um, they do consulting for our clients, both on their own and in conjunction with Profit, so they make our thinking for our clients better. And so we're really excited to have Charlene here. Uh, amazingly enough, this is for Charlene's first visit to Hong Kong in 30 years. Whoa. Uh, ooh, I think that's right. I think, given the size of the crowd that she has drawn in here, it will not be her last visit. Uh, and it will probably be less than 30 years before she comes again. So. Um, you know, Charlene is a prolific author. We have copies of her book. She's in the midst of writing a new book. I think she's going to talk about that now. So I'm going to turn it over to Charlene. I think we're going to keep it fairly light and casual, and hopefully everybody comes with lots of questions. Yes. I love Q&A. So thank you, Jay. Thank you very much. So, thank you so much for coming. I was just circulating around a little bit, and I was asking people, so why are you here? And it's about disruption. Like, disruption is like this key word that we throw around. We'd like to hear about disruptions. We probably, quite a few of us, consider ourselves disruptors. How many of you are disruptors? Consider yourself a disruptor or innovator or a change person or something. I see hands going up and down like this, okay? So we're trying to figure this out. This is a key part because we talk about disruption because we acknowledge that disruption is all around us. We know it's happening. We know it's happened to our organizations. We seek it out. We avoid it. So we have this weird relationship with disruption. And being a researcher, I was very curious, what does disruption mean? What does it mean to be disruptive? What does it mean to have a disruptive organization to be disruptive? And there's a lot of literature, and when I started asking people, well, what is it? What is disruptive? They go, it's Uber. It's innovation. It's product. It's a process. And that's when I just go, wait a minute, if we don't know what it is, how can we harness it? How can we deal with it? How do we thrive with it? So this becomes an interesting research question for me. So I set about to figure out what disruption means. And I'm literally right in the middle of my research right now. So what I'm going to share with you is the thinking behind it. My thinking is fundamentally disruption is a pain point. And the pain point is caused when relationships shift. In particular, power shifts between relationships, between organizations, within organizations, across ecosystems. When that power shifts, though, something very interesting happens. One of the persons in the entities that obtain that power suddenly begin to grow. 
So true disruption, if it's harnessed and you can use it, will result in exponential growth. Even the companies and organizations and the individuals who are growing exponentially, they're experiencing pain. Disruption simply in the end is pain. We feel it in many different ways, which is why we have so many problems thinking about it. So when I think about this, I think about the classic ways we think about organizations and strategies. We think about strategies, leadership in organizations and culture. So if you look at those three things, I wanted to understand how each of those things change in a disruption mindset. So if you think about strategy, first of all, and I'm going to talk for just about 10, 15 minutes, and then we'll open up the Q&A. If you think about strategy, the biggest problem with strategy isn't necessarily deciding what to do. When I go around and talk to companies, I go, if you could do anything, if you could have a fairy godmother come along, wave the magic wand, and tomorrow you were a disruptive organization. You could go out there and be disruptive and be successful, guaranteed 100%, what would you do? Every organization has their wish list figured out. They know what they need to do. It's not a mystery. But the problem is, how do they make the choices? Because you can't always do what you want. And how do you put the investments, and how do you make coordinated moves to result in a strategy? The strategies are what you will do, and just as importantly, what you won't do. So how do you figure that out and, and put that strategy together? And in particular, how do you be disruptive on one end and at the same time keep everything going and deliver on those daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly results that you're expected to do? How do you change and still stay constant? And the research and conclusions I come up to is that the only way you can be that way, be focused on both the future and the present, is to be completely customer obsessed. And not just the leader and not just a few people in your innovation and disruptive leadership. It's the entire organization needs to be customer obsessed. You have to create a culture of customer obsession. Okay. And so the question becomes then, what happens? Can you get it? It's really and so the question becomes, how do you actually do this and create a uh, culture of disruption? Oh, I need the little clicker thing. And, um, I, I thought I'd show you uh, what Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg's dashboard looked like. Okay, so anybody want to see what Mark Zuckerberg cares about? So this is what it looks like. It's a little hard to see, but it's called Zuck's dashboard. And this is from actually 2010. Right, so what does he care about in 2010? What's interesting is that you have all the users here. Look what's in the second column, mobile usage. This is 2010 and nobody thought about mobile. It, it's just to give yourself a date. Uh, they have mobile users, um, they have iPhone, Blackberry, and Android users. And then you have engagement, site performance, connected users, connected sites, and there's this blank area called monetization. It says a lot about what he is focused on. He's focused on what the people are doing, what his users are doing. And it, the interesting thing is, everybody in Facebook could see this dashboard. What was important to the CEO? So I go around now and I ask CEOs, what's on your dashboard? How do you measure success? What does your performance look like? And are customers in your upper left-hand corner of your dashboard? Because if they're not, you're going to lose sight of them. You're not going to be able to focus on what they need today and what they need in the future. And look what's right in the middle of his dashboard here, mobile users, the future of those customers. That's how he was able to focus on 
what's happening today and the future because this is what he looked at every single day, all day long. So how do you create customer obsession in order to do that? And, and again, I think it's something that you drive into every single person because if you, as long as you are aligned around, I just gotta get my job done today versus how do I do my job better in order to serve that customer better. This is the idea behind a strategy, the leadership in the organization, where every single person comes to work every day and says, how do I change and do things better on behalf of my customer? It's no longer about me, no longer about the politics in my office, it is about that customer. So that's how you create strategy, ones that are absolutely focused on the customer because that's the only way you can be disruptive because guaranteed they are moving faster than anybody else in the industry. So if you can even keep up with them, you will win. The second area is around leadership. And I do believe that leadership requires a different type of, of approach and principles in order to lead disruption. Because in the end, it is hard. It's very difficult. And so you need to be thinking about how do you create a movement not one that is every day, but actually one that actually takes people and says, we're gonna achieve this really audacious goal. And along the way, it's gonna be really painful. But no matter what, we're gonna achieve it. Don't worry about the things that go wrong and that people who are parts of movements ignore all the things that can go wrong. Um, I'll just give an example in the US. We just elected a president, which everybody said, there's no way he could be um, uh, elected. He's crazy. He does all these crazy things on Twitter. He has, you know, all the reasons why you, he, you should not believe in him. But he spoke to the people, the, to the, the Trumpians, the Trumpets, however you want to talk to them. And if you ever meet them, and like half my family voted for Trump. And I would sit there and go, how? Why? But look at all the things that he's done. And they go, we don't care because we believe that he will make America great again. They absolutely believe, and he created a movement, led it, and effectively won his way into the market. And if you look at some of the largest organizations that we think of as disruptive, they actually have created a culture, but the leadership in particular is focused on disruption, on creating a movement. So I thought I'd put up here Amazon as an example, and here are their leadership principles. And if you look at their leadership principles, and think about your own organization, about what you're purpose and mission and especially <coughs> values that guide you every day. How are they similar or different from Amazon's principles? They have things like, oh goodness gracious, what's number one? Customer obsession. Ownership, think big. They believe that leaders are right a lot. The higher you develop the best is system high standards have backbone, disagreeing, commit. These are the ways that they're going to lead the organization and work amongst each other. There's a bias for action. I love the fact if you've ever seen some of the stuff about Jeff Bezos, he's really cheap. <laughs> very frugal, very thoughtful, and wants to save every penny to say, how do we invest in that for the future for the customers? Learn to be curious, learn trust, dive deep, invent and simplify and deliver results. Always deliver the results. Now these are not just values, but the principles by which they will lead. And these are principles invested in disruption in growth. They are not things about, how do I feel good? People will feel good because they're achieving that growth, they're achieving that disruption, and they're absolutely aligned inside of the culture of the organization to be aligned against those customers. 
So leadership requires a sense of movement, not just everyday leadership, but leadership that will galvanize people towards a very specific goal. And then when you think about culture, culture is very different. Because we think of culture as this amorphous thing. And some of the research we're doing is, is built on a, um, some fantastic work among the uh, culture web, which looks and breaks down all the elements of culture. Uh, there's an exercise you do with some organizations that say, what are the beliefs that you have built on, the stories and the rites and the rituals and the processes that have gotten you to where you are today? And they're valuable, but they may be holding you back. So what are the new beliefs, the new stories you have to tell and create around disruption, around customer obsession? And I thought that this is the examples of that culture web. It's a little bit hard to read, but we look at this and say, how do we think about culture across these elements? I was working with one organization, and they were going through a digital transformation. Their strategy was really good, very well thought through. But they realized that they didn't have the culture to be able to do this. They had never gone through a transformation like this. So how can they think about it and be smart about it? Originally, they were thinking about, well, how do we need to organize ourselves to be able to have the right culture? But that's just one element. They needed to start thinking about stories, thinking about the symbols that would represent what disruption would mean to prepare the organization for the pain that would be inevitable. <coughs> And so there's lots of ways to be thinking about this, and we, you can go systematically through this. And the organizations that are leading the change, making that change happen, are systematically, and importantly, using digital to be able to make this change happen. So for example, if I go out there today and I say, we're gonna have a new process, we have new governance, in order to streamline the way that we get approval processes done, how will I know that people are doing it? Right now, you train everyone, lay out the new processes, and you cross your fingers and hope that it worked. But today, because of digital work, you can actually put in processes in place to be able to see what's happening. So when we think about disruption, I actually think you need to have a tremendous amount of process and structure and organization. It's just the opposite. I think of it as an oxymoron of organized chaos. But until you have that organization and that structure, how can people feel safe to be able to take on these audacious goals, to do these disruptive things? So I believe, actually, that disruption requires a very thoughtful approach to strategy, an intentional movement of leadership, and again, a tremendous forethought and foresight into thinking about how will you systematically change the organization and the culture in order to be much more disruptive. I put all this together and I think about it as um, the title of the book, It's a Disruptor's Agenda. There was a step-by-step -step formula that you can follow. There's no magic science to this. People go, well, where's the magic bullet? Where's the easy button that I can push to make disruption happen? If it's that easy, then why don't we do it? I go back again to the fact that this is really painful. It's very hard. It's about the relationships with people and this power shift that has to happen along the way. But unless you are focused and again obsessed on what you can achieve when you are focused on those customers, you won't go through the pain of this. All of these things have to be aligned. So, deep breath, that's my sort of prepared remarks. There's lots to unpack underneath there. I want to open it up to a discussion because it's always much more lively and interesting when we can apply this to real situations. And we just ask that 
as you're thinking about questions you would ask, think about ways that you can extend it so other people can also benefit from the Q&A that comes out. And by the way, I'm here to learn just as much from you. Um, I, again, I mentioned that I'm just halfway through my research. Uh, the questions that I get from sessions like this are incredibly informative in the way I think about the research and the outcomes. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Charlene, uh, we've met Walter at, uh, at Huawei. You spent some time on, on Monday, and the comment you made about organized chaos or processes leading to disruption, um, I'd like to better understand that because, as you know, the company um, Huawei has, is exceedingly well organized um, and has a, a love of process. Um, so how do the two fit so well together? Um, if you can perhaps unpack that thing. Yeah, and, and this is the reason why I met Walter last year, and I was so intrigued because Huawei has grown tremendously. I think know Huawei. And, and at the same time, I was like, well, how did you do that? How do you sustain this across such a diverse uh, geography and product set? And then I discovered that this, they actually had process people walk around and make sure that if you're following the process, but instead of it being a debilitating, slowing things down, it actually accelerates things. And this is, again, just counterintuitive. But I, again, I had done some research. I, I wrote a previous book around open leadership. And the counterintuitive side of there says that in order to be more open, you have to be more structured. You have to have the guide rails in place so people know how open they can be. So how disruptive can you be? How much can the organization tolerate? And very importantly, how do we align the disruptions or achieve this goal that we all set for ourselves? So I think it was interesting, right? Because you don't normally think of disruption as an orderly process. It actually isn't. The thinking is not orderly. But the process of getting to that point, you need to have a way to structure it in order to harness the power of that disruption. Absolutely counterintuitive. And that's the part that, that, that I think the most interesting part of the research that keeps coming up is that when we think about disruption, it isn't around letting everyone go off and do everything because that can't be aligned against what the organization needs. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, that, that actually kind of leads me to my question. What, what's the thing about the word disruption? Because it has such a negative connotation. You know, I, like I'm a mother too, so when I hear the word disruption, I think disruptive child. So I do think, you know, success or a way to progress, yeah. you know, humankind. So what's the thing behind the word disruption? Yeah, so the question, and I'll just repeat it, is disruption is such a negative word. Mm. How can we think about it as a positive thing? And, and I have two kids. Yeah. I'm on the other side now. They're like, you know, over there, almost off the college. And the, the most destructive time period is, you know, when they're they're breaking things, but think about what's going on behind that breaking. They're pushing the boundaries, they're growing, they're learning. And there can't be a more disruptive time period than teenage years, especially the early teenagers. It is, I'm sorry, but they're just ugly, awkward, socially just like not with it. And it's just painful watching them go through this period around like three years. But they're growing. Oh my goodness, they're growing. And it's just organized, I mean, hair sprouting out of who knows where. But it's going towards this place, right? And it's, it's somewhat managed, and it's somewhat directed to something. It's not all happening at the same time. It's an awful process. But they are growing exponentially. 
So if we were to grow, and this is where you think about it, disruption can be measured, it's not on and off, it's a spectrum between, let's say one over here, where everything's status quo, and then 10, which is, you know, things are just, like you're barely hanging on. It's like a race car just, just going as fast as possible. If you think about it, how many of you would say you're a 10? Nine? Let's just see it. I'm just gonna keep counting down. Nine? Eight? Oh, ten. <laughs> <laughs> not, not in the amount of that you guys are talking about. Right. Seven. Okay, going six. 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 Five. Okay, five. Four. Three. Two. One. And so this is an exercise I do. It's interesting to see organizations, especially as I sat with a team of 25 leaders of a $3 billion company. And I asked them, where do you put yourself in the spectrum? And they couldn't agree where they were. They knew they were kind of like low to middle, but like how disruptive are we? How are we thinking about this? And they said, you just want to move from a two. They agreed that they were a two, and they want to move to a three. And like, that's awesome. And what would it take to move to a three? And for a two to move to a three, it's just as difficult as a nine to a 10. But you, I can't expect an organization as a two to act like a 10. It would just kill them. But guess what? Everybody else in their industry is also a two. So they just move from a two to a three, they win. They win. So this is the payoff in many ways. Why do disruption if you're not going to grow? If you're not going to win? It's just hand-waving otherwise. And the way that organizations and leaders and boards, I, I'm actually very focused on boards and CEOs and the relationship and the push-pull between that and the accountability that comes with that. How do you actually think about pushing the organization where that disruption comes from? Sometimes it's a board, sometimes it's a CEO, sometimes it's a change agent somewhere else. But all of these forces need to be aligned. You are going to move an organization from what number it is today to some other number in the future. And yeah, precisely, very interesting what you are saying uh, right now. Is there very clear differences have you found between the types of disruption that come from different places? For example, is there uh, an identifiable difference between a charismatic leaders such as Steve Jobs or in this case Donald Trump or, or when it happens by a network of people who are a little bit uh, carrying out individual uncoordinated breakthroughs. Yeah, I think again, let's talk about the charismatic leader first of all. There are many, many studies that show that charismatic leaders are not necessarily the best leaders, or even ones that lead the best movements. Mm -hmm. Right? Trump was able to carry it through, but we don't actually understand it. And if you dig down with the covers, his organization was very lean, but it was also very strategic in the way that they thought about where to put very limited resources. They were incredibly smart and they paid off for them on the very last day because uh, they knew exactly where to deploy those resources. I mean, they had Donald Trump calling into very specific radio stations in precincts in Wisconsin that they knew they could win. You don't do that unless you really know what you're going to, where are the levers you can pull. They didn't know they could actually pull off, but they had a strategy and they followed it to the very end of the day. So I, I do think that to follow that on, I don't think you can ever, if you're talking about an organization, and I'm not talking just about organizations that are like thousands of people, I'm talking about organizations even of 50 people. Anytime you get more than 
people who can sit in a room and have a direct connection, you have organizations that need to be disrupted, and it's painful for them to do this. It can never be done at a truly organizational level if it's just a network of people. You need to have that leadership. Because that leadership, in the end, decides where to allocate scarce resources. And you cannot move an organization from whatever number it is to the next unless you make strategic bets and the leadership is behind and the organization is behind. You have to have all three. So a lot of people are like, my CEO doesn't believe in it. What do I do? And I'm like, find another company. <laughs> we can't get them to do this. <laughs> because in the end, you can push, you can believe. I literally talked to one person for like three years and she just absolutely believes she goes, I know this organization can do it. And I go, I hear you, you have so much potential, but your leadership does not. You can't do anything about the leadership, so the most powerful thing you have are your two legs you need to walk. David. Um, we know about the startups, the Ubers, the Airbnbs, the Shelby's, um, but one of the best examples of corporate disruption, you know, people who have gone against maybe the state leadership at the top and got shit done um, in big level companies. What are the best examples you can tell us about? Well, um, I'll, I'll use an example, and I'm not using it because they're a client of profits, but I love the example of T-Mobile. And this is not, again, people who were fomenting it from the bottom. This actually came from the board. So T-Mobile was, I think, number four carrier in the United States, just going nowhere. They lost out on an acquisition for AT&T and they took that money and said how do we brand a company, reposition a company to do something different. And the interesting thing is they decided, again through lots of research through um, with the support of companies like Profit and many other people too, but understood that there was this untapped distrust, need for transparency and authenticity that really was not being addressed, this unmet need. So one of the types of disruption strategies I have is around brand and about the value proposition. And this is more than just changing your tagline. They became the uncarrier. But it was more than just changing the tagline. It was about reorienting the entire company from top to bottom. The way you sell the product, the way you tear up the contracts, the way you are greeted when you walk into the store, the way you're answered on your phone when you have customer service. Everything changed. The product itself didn't change. It's still the same thing, the same wires and everything, but fundamentally the company had changed and the value proposition had changed, and that was extremely disruptive because they grew. If they continue to grow, they have the number one levels of acquisitions and, and um, conversions from other companies, and that was three years ago. So sustainable growth, exponential growth over their competitors. Uh, so that's one strategy for me, thinking about the value proposition being changed by brand. Another one is when you start changing the ecosystem. Um, and so I, I think about that, and then also I think about um, just the traditional sort of product innovations too that are there. So when I think about things like what Clay Christensen has written around disruptive innovation, very, very valid, but it's not the only way. And the way that he framed it was like, it was an absolute, and this is the way that's really disruptive, this is one area, and, um, and that's only one way though. And so there are many, many ways to be disruptive, again, in small ways and large ways, but it is always thinking about power shifts within ecosystems. Yeah, back here. Yeah, uh, following up on that. Oh, thank you. Uh, following up on that, it's interesting. When you sit down at that first meeting, let's say you haven't tried to talk to the CEO yet, and you're coming up with a new disruptive 
idea, technology, whatever. Do you have any, uh, I guess, experience points or tips or suggestions? You sit down face to face, what happens? How do you, how do you approach that discussion in the first time? You go to that CEO and you go, hey, I got this great, great new technology. You gotta try it, right? For each shiny object, the CEO's eyes will start glazing over. If you go to the CEO and just go, I have an insight into what our customers need. I have an idea of how we can achieve one of your top three strategic goals. He will be all ears. She will be all ears. The thing here is, we oftentimes, and I've seen so many people, and I've been one of those people, when you walk in, you say, I can see how this could be really helpful. I use this technology, I see the opportunity in this product, but unless you can put it in the frame of customers, or you can put it in, if possible, put it in the frame of what that, that CEO is thinking about. Leaders are really good because of what they do. They focus and they achieve their goals. You know, talk to a leader, they probably have between three and five goals that they really care about. And it's never more than five because they only have five fingers and they have to go literally count them out. This is literally what happens. You have to align whatever initiative we have to those goals. If it's not there, they won't care. You could talk about how you put all the data, everything in front of them. If it's not one of those five things, they won't care. The really hard part is if you believe that the strategy is wrong because those five goals cannot result in growth. That's a very different kind of conversation that requires leadership across the team, and frankly, that's where the board comes in and says, CEO, you need to change. Very different type of change. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. If you had a room full of startups and you asked that 10 to zero question, they'd all start at 15 and then probably drop off around 12. So my question is, at the moment, you know, the disruptors, you talk about it in a, in a kind of corporate world. A lot of people are leaving corporates in their 40s to set up businesses because they get frustrated with the pace of change in corporates. And then, you know, they get to a point where the business grows and they need the, dis they need the distribution of a corporate, or they need the, the people of a corporate. So how do you think this, this kind of loops in? Because in Hong Kong, for example, you see now people running accelerator programs, hackathons, whatever. And is this really, do you have to rely on an outsider to disrupt? Because I, I see a lot of these slides and I think, yeah, but you know, it comes down to people. And if somebody's not going to have in their KPIs, they don't give a, a you know, whatever, that's whatever it is. So how, how do you integrate, you know, the real disruptors? into the corporate world. Again, I think if you have a, okay, let's, let's think of them as 15. We all know these people. They're 15s. If you try to bring them into a two, the immune system will split them out. Right? They don't belong in a two. They cannot be effective in a two. They're like, the type of disruption they want to do that drives them every day, they should stay in that startup. And the biggest mistake I see from companies is like, oh, we are going to change two. It's an aircraft carrier. I have a chapter that's called Turning the Aircraft Carrier. Because people don't, they don't try because they don't believe they can turn an aircraft carrier. I was on an aircraft carrier that was in the middle of a surge and supplies chain and the captain goes, turn. And 5,000 18 and 19-year-olds turn that ship. So, and they couldn't do it in the beginning with the training, but they trained themselves to do it. That organization can be disrupted, but not at that same level. 
So when I think about matching up disruptors to a disruptive organization, you need to make sure that there's an alignment. Uh, and the biggest mistake is that these aircraft carriers don't even try to turn the ship. And they just try to acquire and bring it in, and it doesn't have any place to land. So why do that to yourself? Why do that to an entrepreneur? Why raise the hopes of an entrepreneur if an entrepreneur doesn't believe? They think they can turn around the ship, but they can't do it alone because there's no place for that to happen. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of energy spent on innovation centers. Um, I live in Silicon Valley. There's thousands of them around. Those are great for formulating the ideas, for crafting the strategies, for building inspiration. But if you really want change that results again in exponential growth, you have to change the mothership. Absolutely, it's the only way to do it. Because they have to scale, right, to be able to make it happen. Yeah, thank you. Hi, so um, I come from a five-generation, 140-year-old company. And so what if the leadership, for example, the group CEO is my dad, <laughs> and then the chairman of the board is my uncle, right? And um, so if I want to disrupt, how do you disrupt your own family? Because <laughs> I see them. Pre and post work as well. Yeah. <laughs> Family owned businesses are fascinating, right? I, I belong to a group called YPO. Um, yeah, YPO, can we talk afterwards? Let's, let's go to forum. And um, the, the, the key thing is, is that you see this, this is not a disruption issue, it's a family issue, it's a family leadership issue. It's how do you um, raise the differences and then resolve them? So, as a, again, I kind of go back to strategy leadership and organization. Inside that, inside of family-run businesses, how do you set yourself up for change, period? Any kind of change, let alone disruptive change. And unless you can have that kind of dialogue in the relationship and level of trust, frankly, between people to be able to have that dialogue inside of a leadership team, there's no way that any change can happen, let alone disruptive change. So there's a level of transition that happens. It's very difficult inside of family organizations, but the fact of the matter is, how many generations? Four, five generations? Five generations? They had the same situation that you were in before. They had to do the same thing to the previous generation, the generation. So that's the thing that you lean into. Talk about culture. What are the stories, the symbols, the rights, the routines that you have to set up for the next generation? And they understand that that has to be there. And they have to respect that as they want the family business to succeed. Because in the end, you want the business to thrive because it supports the family. And if that is going to be the goal, that's what we center it on. Yeah, uh, you go over here and then we we'll go back here. Yeah. Uh, hi, Casey here. Um, as all, I work in the technology company at the moment. As you know, in all tech company, there's a lot of chief. Chiefs, CMOs, CFOs, and so on. Normally, they're, they're, they're CEO's mate. And from my experience, in terms of having a disruption mindset, I think CEO might buy it. But in terms of getting the message across the board, sometimes it can be quite difficult, particularly if the so-called COO are not, let's say, as tech-savvy as the CEO. So how can you advise, let's say, a tech company to to, to let the whole company buy the whole concept so that particularly on the senior management level they, they believe in the disruption market and ultimately 
ultimately, everyone feel about the position. And I felt like a lot of technology company, uh, particularly in the chief uh, personnel level uh, position uh, people, you know, they do have this um, leniency of rather change it, we should just stick with what we do so that we can keep my position safe. Yeah. And again, there's, there's two ways of thinking about this. If you can have the data that says, if, unless we change, if we, if we stay the course of where we are, right, you're just going to start spiraling down because things that just sit there start sinking into the water, into the quicksand, because everything else is passing you by. You've got to keep swimming. So we know for a fact, again, there's nothing like being able to go and talk to customers and hear from customers that you are not keeping up with them to motivate you. Competitors might motivate you for a short time, but you can always say, well, they're just kind of crazy, right? But your customers will always, again, if you have good customer relationships and you're willing to listen to them, they will tell you really what's going on. I can't think of a single company, a single industry, and, and I'll just give an example. One of the industries I was working with, really boring industry, B2B insurance. It doesn't get more conservative, status quo than that. And they are the ones who are the most worried in so many ways because they can just see it changing all around them. They are going to go extinct unless they can find another way and reason for them to exist. So I keep going back to that customer. Because if you're truly customer focused, if you can find ways to serve them better and faster than your competitors and meet their needs better than faster than your competitors and disrupt yourself, that becomes the reason. It can, because if you always look for internal reasons, you'll never find it. By the way, one of my favorite tech CEOs is Jeff Wiener from LinkedIn. Uh, you go up to him, and every time you see him, every I see him multiple times, all the time, and and I see his team quite a bit too. And every time he will say, you know, hi, I'm Jeff Reader, I'm the CEO of LinkedIn, and our mission and purpose in the world is to connect with world's professionals. And he says this every single time. It's like pushing a button. Hi, I'm Jeff Reader, CEO of LinkedIn, and I'm. And he talks about members first, about the next play every single time. I ask one of his engineers, why did you do this? Well, you know, one of our values is members first and our mission. And I'm like, what is this? Is the organization brainwashed? And they are around the mission and purpose. But they're aligned. He's created a movement. This is what we're about. And someone asked him once, when will you stop doing that? When will you stop talking about mission, purpose, and values? And he said, I will stop doing it when people stop looking surprised. Because the fact of the matter is, we get so caught up in everything that we do, we forget about why we're doing it. And we think that we say it once as leaders, and people hear us, they don't. They hear it, but they forget, because they get busy doing the things they do every day. So if you're trying to achieve really audacious goals, you have to remind people, why are we doing this? Are we doing everything possible to be customer obsessed, and moving faster, and making changes every day? Because remember, you have permission to do this. Um, one of the uh, values that I had out Altimeter was empowerment. And somebody was asked, well, why do you have to tell people if people should know and feel they're empowered? I go, that's just it. They keep forgetting. And so I kept, people would say to me, well, I don't know, should I be doing this? And I go, you know, you're empowered. That's one of our values. You should go about doing it. And I realized I have to say this all the time. Remind people, you know, you have permission. You have the power to go do this. I don't have to say this to you. 
I'm kind of tired of saying this to you. He, and I had to say it over and over and over again. Because you forget. You go into your um, habits, into your biases. I've worked at places. There's no way possibly that Australia would be okay with me taking this step. And then they do it, and they build the confidence in, the, in themselves and in the organization and in me as a leader to be able to continue doing it. Yeah. 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 Hi, um, Charlene, thank you for sharing. I really enjoy listening to this and the leadership, the vision, and the structure and culture are all important. I'm very much interested to know something. It's like, thank you. As we were young, we are young, and we've always been told by the parents and teachers that you should not disrupt, and then you get punished if you get you know, disrupted. So I'm interested to hear from you if you have done any research to share with us that any successful recognition and reward program in the corporation that, that drive people's behavior? Yeah, um, great question, because if we are told through our early age, don't take risks because you'll get in trouble. And I, it, all my work around social and engagement and leadership in my book is, we actually want people to share more, but as leaders in our entire professional lives, we told not to share. And then now it's good to share, and we're like, which way is it? We don't know how to share and share in a confident way. Uh, and so I believe, again, you have to give people the confidence to be able to disrupt. It is not about rewarding failure or rewarding success. It's about rewarding taking the risk. And so when somebody takes the risk, that's the point that you reward them and give them recognition. Because it says, this moment here is the moment that we treasure. The fact that you had the idea, you raised your hand and said, I'm going to take a risk and step out onto that plank. And I don't know what's going to happen. And we are there to support you. We're there to say, no matter what happens, we're going to stand by you. And that's the only way it happens. And the next time somebody does it, and they fail to succeed, you celebrate both. You support them. You give them the next job. And it's not based on their outcomes. I was just talking to a CEO today where we were talking about how you know KPIs and scorecards are really important, having measurements against that. I'm actually, I believe in that. But I think they're actually detrimental because if you have to have a certain revenue of account at the end of the quarter, how much risk will you take? You won't take it. So versus saying my KPI is not whether you succeed in the risk, but you take the risk. That's a very different thing. And then strategically, you make enough of the bets that you know half of them will work and do really well and half of them won't work. Okay, maybe one in 10 actually work. But that big bet is great. But the other nine people have to be recognized for taking that risk too and not punished for not achieving that. Otherwise, no one would sign up for any particular risk. All right, take two All more right, questions. I'm going to be the bad guy here okay. and say two more questions. We've got lots more drinks and food. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I'll be around. Two more Thank questions. You. Okay, go here and then right here. So, he talks about sketch of jobs and also not having organized chaos and stuff. How do you get the balance right? You're talking about the leadership to make the right decision and stuff. I guess you're talking about ambidextrous organization, exploration as well as exploitation, but how do you define what the balance is? And you're also talking about Christiansen, who's clearly talking about disruptive innovation, but then you seem to be espousing sort of incremental, sustainable innovation through looking at what the customers saying they need or observing what they need. How do you get the balance right? between that sort of incremental and disruptive, but also your core. Yeah, we could talk about this for days. <laughs> and I'm still trying to figure it out, so we have examples. Again, I'm always looking for examples. My key thing here is that mix is the secret. 
right? And the only way you can figure out what the right mix is to be guided by your customers. I keep going back to that. There is no magic mix. And that mix is dependent on your view of the customers, who you want to serve, the bets that you make, and then what your leadership and organization is capable of. So I can say, I want to make this a big, huge bet, disruptive innovation, clay position style, right? My organization may not need it. Do that. My customers may not need it. And the thing that will drive that exponential growth may actually be something different. So I, the, the thing is, is that we put so much models, so much value on Christensen's third stage. He actually puts a lot of value in all three stages. But they're very different, right? And they all can drive value. So where are you on that spectrum and what can you do? He's skeptical that any organization can, established organization can do the disruptive innovation. I'm not so sure about that. Definitely there are models of that happening, but it's very difficult and that's like a 10 when you're a 2, that's not going to help you draw that game. Maybe one last question right here. Uh, thanks. I think you had a very nice uh, example where you mentioned that in big organizations, people recognize that they're maybe not open to disruption. They're only like two on the scale. And in startups, maybe they're like the 15, right? But I think the reason therefore is that there's a different risk perception. In a big organization, you have a lot to lose because you have achieved a lot, right? Whereas in startup, you have nothing. So you have an, an opposite opinion, right? You can take risks. So what is some of the examples where you can get a big organization to basically see that actually that the risk of not acting, of not disrupting, is actually bigger than the risk of continuing what they're doing. Because I think they all understand that they need to change, right? But in a big organization, it's really that the perceived risk in that change is just too big. So do you have a practical example how like an organization, they basically leaped over that kind of yeah. risk? Yeah, I just did it with this organization. We, uh, we did an exercise called walking the plank. Yeah. We actually made them come up with you know, ideas of how they can change this culture. I mean, it's a very simple thing. Just how do you change a culture? Just give me one example. And then we had them push each other. This is that level of trust that you have to build. And to push each other to make that idea even more audacious and more crazy. And then as soon as it got just so crazy, they take one step back, and the idea that came right before that is the idea they put them on the part. And that's what they were going to do. So this is about making them feel comfortable, coming up with crazy ideas, but in the safety of their peers. And so that's how you start breaking the world. It's not an individual sport disruption. It's got to be a team. It's got a team of leaders who are going to be there to support you. Because it's too darn scary and too darn um, just painful. So we need to have that little trust with each other to make that happen. Cool. Thanks. Okay. So I just wanted to thank Charlene uh, for coming for her talk, and so if we can give her a big round of applause, that'd be great. Thank you. Thank you.